Blog Talk Radio. In America, fight over the budget continues to be overshadowed by social issues. But this is just a distraction to keep us from noticing that everyone is in the pocket of Wall Street. Good day and welcome to Mama Club Mama Chat brought to you by BubbleGenius.com. I'm Donna Schwartz-Mills, also known as SoCal Mom, and today I'm joined with Cinematic of K-12 News Network. Huge news cycle this week, Sin. Where are oh, Good morning. I can hardly keep up. Excuse me. I have a dog that will not stop barking at squirrels. So. <laughs> well, that'll be our third guest for today. <laughs> Um, yeah, there's just so much going on. Um, Japan continues to be just a heartbreaking kind of situation. Um, first it was the earthquake. I heard that they upgraded the initial earthquake from um, whatever original rating they got, 7.9 something, to now they're saying it was actually a 9.0 um, to give, you know, true indication of the severity of, of that quake. And um, you know, I then think that was, was upgraded from 8.9 to 9.0 in Japan. I don't know if the there U.S. has also. Yeah, and uh, and then of course there was the tsunami that followed on that, and then now we're looking at a potential nuclear meltdown of <laughs> the reactor in Fukushima. So it's it's just very nerve wracking all around. I think everyone is shaken by the tragedy and also on edge because as we all know um you know a nuclear reactor melting down is a is a global emergency and not just limited to that one nation it's not like our ocean cuts off you know they're in the middle of the pacific and we're magically protected from you know whatever radiation might seep uh from japan you know to california and so on and so forth right we are all interconnected and something like this really, really brings that home. Um, I know you know that my husband is a geologist. That's right. He gets um, updates every time there's a big quake. It comes Mm -hmm. in his email from the USGS. And Mm -hmm. every day since that quake, he's coming home and looking at at his email, and he's like amazed at all of the been coming in in Japan that are all over 6.0. And remember that the Silmar quake and the Northridge quake were um, six-point quakes. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's. I cannot imagine what the people in Japan are going through right now. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's frightening enough to just be in a six-point. I don't know. Did you see the graphic in the L.A. Times on Sunday that compared quake sizes? No. Okay, this was like the best illustration yet because you know that the Richter scale does things in in factors of a thousand, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, So it showed the Haiti quake, which was a seven. And it's just a little tiny square. Mm. And Haiti quake was bigger than Northridge. Okay, then it shows the Chile quake, which is a square of maybe a centimeter by a centimeter. Uh And then it showed Tokyo the 8.9 or 9.0, and it's like two inches. Oh, my goodness. Like two. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's like the difference. I need to find that graphic and, and maybe post that on the Mama Crap site because that really brings it home what the difference in intensity yeah. is with those with those two earthquakes. Yeah. Um, and then one other thing about, about the nuclear, you know, I don't know if you know this, but my very first foray in the political world was back in the 70s when there was an initiative on the California ballot, the No Nukes Initiative, back in 78. And so I was canvassing neighborhoods, doing the precinct walking for Project Survival. Mm-hmm. And that um, initiative lost, um, where we were, we were saying to build no nukes. But then mm-hmm. Three Mile Island happened after that, which effectively stopped development of nuclear plants here in the mm-hmm. United States mm-hmm. up until recently where people are looking at it again because it does not uh, contribute to global warming. It has all these other problems, but you know, people have been giving it another look and now mm-hmm. you know, who knows what's going to happen because this is this is totally frightening. Yes. Well, and and we in California, you know, um, we're not too far from that ring of fire, <laughs> that very a volatile part of the Pacific, um, you know, where Japan is just on the on the rim, and oh, we um, are part of that too. You oh, know, we we're are. Okay, I, tectonic, um, you know, we're on the western edge. Of right, right, right. Um, but uh, we we share um, a lot of the same kinds of. Um, you know, engineering and architectural kinds of of um, upgrades in codes back and forth between California and Japan. Um, and if anything, you know, I'm seeing this as, um, you know, there was potentially much more greater loss of life. I mean, I think we saw in Haiti how the the poverty of that nation, as well as the um, you know, the the lack, pretty much the lack of any sort of building codes that were earthquake safe really just combined in an unfortunate way to just basically decimate the nation. And I think Japan, because it is a, a more developed nation and it also um, had been developing this kind of earthquake safe retrofitting all along, um, that you know, they were much better suited um you know, to withstand this, and so the loss of life, while tragic, was was not as great as it could have been in a in a much worse situation where, you know, there had not been regulations about these kinds of building codes and so on and so forth. So I think a lot of people are really kind of stopping to take a look and say, you know, right now the GOP is just sort of insane and off the edge with no regulations. You know, get rid of you know, the tsunami warning system and FEMA in the United States and the rest of us who are have not gone crazy are looking at this disaster and saying, No, this is exactly what government's purpose is, is to help people in these times of crisis with things like FEMA, with things like um, you know, making sure that building codes are up to standards that will withstand as far as, you know, human engineering can 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 make it you know, earthquakes of whatever severity. So um, I just think that, you know, now is a time to affirm that we need government to, to kind of make these regulations and, and, you know, 
keep everyone on track, keep it, keep everyone to a higher standard um, in terms of building, in terms of emergency response and things like that. Yes. Sin, we've just been joined by Carol Lee of Kirkland. Oh, great. Carol Lee, there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, we can hear you. Oh, Thank good. You. My phone is giving me weird messages, so I just wanted to... <laughs> <laughs> good morning. Good morning. Every day that the sun comes up, it's a good morning. I know. It's it's starting to feel a little doomsday around here, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, um, I was just listening to you guys talking about sin, and um, I just want to send a message out to all of the, the people that are reporting this in the mainstream media on the cable channels and everything. Could you stop fear-mongering, please? Mm. I mean, you know, we kind of get this. You know, I don't think there's anybody, any sane human being anyway, that isn't concerned about the fact that these nuclear reactors have problems Mm -hmm. and are leaking radiation. Mm -hmm. We all are. But, you know, my first headline this morning that I saw was basically, you know, Japan's nuclear crisis out of control. Oh, wow. (laughs) Don't panic, but... (laughs) (laughs) You know, exactly. And and as you were saying, really, we need to um, take this and make some wise decisions about what we're doing here in this country with nuclear power. I mean, I wrote a post yesterday about my concerns over San Onofre and, and the El Diablo reactors, which are old and, yeah. um, you know, they're rated, yeah, they're rated for a 7.0 and 7.5 mm. earthquake, respectively. And, you know, just, and, and, and we're hearing on the other side of things when they try to minimize it, you know, we hear, well, they've got a 25-foot seawall. And, okay, let's review here. Japan, 9.0 earthquake, 25-foot seawall. 30-foot tsunami. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> You're not going to get a nine-point earthquake, at least near San Onofre. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's a couple of hundred miles away from the San Andreas. Right. And, you know, and one of the reasons why you had that huge tsunami was that the quake was 80 miles offshore. Right. So, um, you know, seven-point is Probably what's going to be generated down there. Just yeah. based on the, the historic record, the geologic record. True. And and actually that in concerns me less than the El Diablo reactor, which yes. is, you know, near Fort Bowl. Yeah, that one's closer to the San Andreas. And right. you know, that one that one you could probably get an eight. And so that it's only rated for a seven point five isn't good enough. Right, right, and and I and I'm not suggesting that we should all um, panic about it, but we should be smart. Yeah. Are you so, hearing an echo from me? A little bit. Is that better? Uh, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'm hearing an echo from me too, which is really annoying. I don't know what where that's coming from. <laughs> okay. All right, well, I'm not hearing it from you, but just me. Go ahead. Okay. Sorry. Well, I also... Go ahead, Donna. No, no, I was going to, uh, as I know you want to talk a little bit about the California budget. Yes. Um, 
there's a group called Educate the State, which is a bunch of uh, what I call really pissed off, riled up PTA moms and dads who <laughs> are looking at this discussion of the budget um, and, uh, you know, certain existing taxes on vehicles and so forth, uh, gas, what have you, uh, ready to expire this coming July. And it, as I understand it, it's going to be about $12 billion sort of hanging in the balance. And so what many of these grassroots activists have done all around the state, people with kids in public schools especially very motivated on this issue, is to try to get um, the legislature to um, vote later on today to pass Jerry Brown's proposed budget, which, as I understand it, would would continue the existing taxes that we have. We would extend it, I believe, for a five-year period. Um, so now, if that doesn't happen, uh, you know, if, if we're if we're not allowed to have a, a vote, if the public is not allowed to have a vote on this in June, then we're kind of up a creek. I mean, we yeah. need the legislature to kind of move on this, but we also need, as the people of California, to you know to vote on this. To to put this to a vote, and you know, the, there's a very narrow window of opportunity for this because, as I understand it, the original date for this kind of vote was uh, June 7th, and then they had to push it. Now they're sort of talking about, well, maybe June 14th is sort of the most outside date, but of course, you know, um, the results have to be tabulated and so on and so forth, and then you know, you're looking at these taxes expiring or not in July. So it's a, it's a very kind of narrow margin that we're working with. And as I understand it, there are probably a handful of, of GOP state senators who are really kind of leading the charge to obstruct Jerry Brown's budget proposal, obstruct <laughs> any sort of public vote coming up uh, in June. And in doing that, they are proposing more cuts, you know, to address the budget shortfalls without looking at the fact that just by extending current taxes, we could have $12 billion. So we could, cut our, we could cut our deficit, our state budget deficit in half. Currently, I think at $25, 26000000000 billion estimated. And so if we had $12 billion, we would be that much less in the hole. It wouldn't fix the whole problem, but we would be less up a creek than we would be if we owed the entire $26 million. And there are, you know, various school districts have been issuing sort of projected budgets. I think I read the other day that there's some 19,000 pink slips that have been issued sort of in anticipation of the worst-case scenario. Um, but LAUSD, you know, was saying we, we would have to maybe have 40 children, you know, per teacher in a class, um, and that might have to cut into K through second grade or third grade, yeah. which is, you know, the younger grades try to protect that and keep it 20 kids to one teacher. Um, so raising the class size ratios, all of that, um, you know, it, I feel like we already know, looking at our public schools, that many of them are, you know, almost all of them are cut to the bone. It's really just um, schools that are in, in wealthier districts, say in Malibu or in Beverly Hills or, you know, wherever, um, that parents have the financial wherewithal to make up the difference. And, uh, you know, for the rest of us, hey, <laughs> you know, we see that people are, are making do with trying to, you know, turn a, turn a sow's ear into a silk purse, basically, um, you know, making the best 
that they possibly can with the less and less that they keep getting from the state. So I think we've really reached a point now where parents are, my feeling is that parents are kind of up in arms and really feeling the pressure to save school at the very least. Yeah, but it doesn't mean that their GOP representatives are listening. It doesn't. But, you know, I've identified five in the GOP five who seem to be the worst leading the charge on this. I have a post up on K-12 News Network with their phone numbers, fax numbers, emails. The vote is scheduled for 1 p.m. this afternoon, I believe, in the legislature. So I, I, from different sources I've been reading, it sounds like they, it, they need, like, two GOP senators and two, like, assembly members who are GOP, to, to get on board with Jerry Brown's plan in the legislature. So if we could kind of pass that hurdle, then, you know, we're we're partway there. We would still need to have the June election. But, you know, let us vote, right? Yeah. I mean, I think even some Republicans are saying, look, why are, what, you know, why are, why the boot on the neck? I mean, let people vote, right? <laughs> Isn't this how our democracy is supposed to work? We're, you know, if we're going to raise taxes or if we're going to cut taxes or whatever it is we're going to do, we should be able to vote on it. It's it's a huge thing that affects our our state budget. Let people vote. So please, if any Californians are listening, I've been pushing this out on Facebook and later on on Twitter. I mean, Californians, this is it, right? You know, make your voice heard. Push back on those GOP fives. You know, I'm thinking like, hmm, those Wisconsinites want to recall Walker? Hmm. (laughs) (laughs) You know, given these state electeds, their terms are so short and their term limited, so, you know, in some cases maybe it's just not really an option, but in other cases maybe it is. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, but the districts are so gerrymandered. I know. There's like no change. There's no, there's no chance for change. They're all safe districts. Yeah, it's it's pretty disturbing. I mean, you know, Huntington Beach, I think one of those from Huntington Beach, reliably red areas. But then then again, it's like, you know, Republicans, hey, they have kids in public schools. They see what's going on, right? I mean, I don't think they could be happy either. Wow. Well, except that, that you know, this is the, the backdoor um, way for Republicans to work at the state level to, um, you know, Bus unions, just like they're doing in in the Midwest states. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fortunately for us, we elected Jerry Brown and not Meg Whitman. Had we elected Meg Whitman, yeah, I guarantee you, it would have been a disaster yeah. in California, <laughs> and it would have been it, California would have looked a lot like Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Um, but in a lot of ways, it it's equally insidious and more subtle because. These these guys are holding out and trying to delay this vote in order to force more budget cuts. That's yeah. what they're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And and schools cannot endure any more budget cuts. They That's just can't. Right. Adapt. You know, I wish somebody would figure out what the per capita spending is. You know, in other words, per child, inflation adjusted for the last 30 years. Because I guarantee you we spend less on our kids. Everybody says there's all this money going into schools, but there's not. If there's more kids, less money. That's, that's my theory. 
<laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, you know, two on the graph, like the two things are, should be staying together, but instead they're diverging. You know, number of children increasing, you know, amount of money per child decreasing. What's wrong with this picture? Yeah. Exactly. But I, I've never found a, like a statistical graph or anything that actually illustrated that. I wish I had one because I think it's um, important that people do understand that, you know, first of all, teachers aren't culprits, and second of all, we're actually spending less now than we were when we were. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so get out there, make some noise. Make some noise. Be annoying. You know, call these people we have until 1 o'clock today, and then we'll sort of see what the wreckage is, <laughs> and then, I guess, go from there. Right. Right. What else is on your mind this morning, ladies? Carolee? Well, what? I've been... I'm going to go back to a little bit to the state budget, if mm -hmm. you don't mind. Just no, for a minute because, Not at all. Uh, I don't know. I mean, uh, we have a lot of international blowouts. Of course, we have what's going on in Bahrain. We have, you know, Egypt. We have Japan. But what's happening here is in the state is a lot of noise, a lot of smoke, and um, a lot of destruction underneath the noise and the smoke. I mean, we have Republicans dropping nuclear bombs in state yeah. legislatures. They're a minority. <laughs> How can yeah. they do this? They have a chokehold well, on us, don't they? They, they do, and, and they do when they're in the majority as well. And in yeah. the Midwest, they, a lot of them are in the majority. They were they were swept in on this so-called mandate, which, of course, wasn't really a mandate. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a coordinated assault on unions, and they're they're hitting where all the basically they're hitting all the states that are not right to work states. So the effort here is is that. But there's something else going on that isn't really getting a lot of play, and that's that 22 states right now have voter ID laws moving through their legislature, which yeah. will essentially um, disenfranchise college students and poor people from right. voting. Uh, it, it, what they're trying to do is make voter caging legal, and for those people who don't know what voter caging is, basically what they do is they, they'll they send out, um, they'll get the voter registration list and send out some sort of mass mailing to the registered voters, specifically registered Democrats, and all the mail that gets returned goes into a database, and then they challenge those voters when they vote at the polls the next time. It's illegal, but they do it anyway, even though it is illegal. And now they're trying to make it legal, basically, by forcing everybody to produce a state-certified ID before they vote. Do we know where these laws originated? Is this one of the Koch brothers' uh, think tanks or something? Well, it comes out of the think tanks. I mean, they've been trying to disenfranchise Democrats for a long time, so right. they've got a dual, dual assault going on, one with the unions trying to be fun Democratic campaigns, and two, with the um, voter ID, which has been, you know, you know, the only people who really commit voter fraud are Republicans. They're the ones that get convicted for it. But yeah. they scream every election that voter fraud is happening, you know, the Democrats are committing voter fraud, and then they, they never prove it. So this is their way of suppressing Democratic votes, basically, is right. Because if you're a college student, and you go live in a dorm, you change your address to that, maybe. Or you don't, one or the other, right? But you're entitled to vote. If you register to vote, you're entitled to vote. 
mm-hmm. at, at that address. Except that if your ID shows your mom and dad's address, you know, your driver's license or whatever, well, too bad. You know, <laughs> you yeah. know that's, yeah, that's what they're trying to do. It's really insidious, and it's happening now in 22 states. They're trying to push these laws through, and because they're making so much noise about the unions and because they're making so much noise about the federal budget, Nobody the voter knows. ID stuff is not getting any play at all. Yeah. yeah. It, they, they, they do seem to have um, a strategy of, you know, if you if you see the ma- magician at work, it's like, look over here, yeah. but over here is where the action's happening, you know, so they know that they know that our somewhat fatal flaw, our Achilles heel, is that you know Democrats generally are very um sort of multi issue and we're often in our own little issue silos, and that is a vulnerability because you know. We're we're a many-headed hydra, and sometimes we can't get all our heads pointing in the same direction. And uh, they know that if there's a shiny object over here, then you know we may we may converge our forces temporarily on that one issue. But then that leaves a lot a lot of a flank unprotected over here and over here and over here. So I think we're I think just constitutionally we're kind of vulnerable in that respect because we we are. You know, we are such a big tent, and we we do embrace, you know, or try to embrace as as much of the tent as possible. It's just that a lot of times we um, we get distracted, and you know, there's certainly a lot of injustice going on on all sides to address. You mean our flaws that we're interested in more things than just low taxes? Yes, exactly. Our fatal flaws that we we have more dimensions than just cutting taxes. And being greedy and government. getting rich. Yeah. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't mean to, you know, I don't mean to say that we're bad. It's just that our strength is as every much our weakness. Right. Yeah. It is. And, and But even so, even if we were totally focused on and completely united, the strategy right now is exactly, exactly what you described. It's sleight of hand. It's look over here while we do this over mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And they're really good. They have a great machine. Mm-hmm. And so they're really good at making a lot of noise. Um, yeah. and, and I would say that if Democrats have a fatal flaw, that we can't seem to put a machine together that you know generates the kind of attention that... Uh, here's a good example. In the Wisconsin issues, right, there was, they actually had people who were really paying attention and getting the word out. So I knew ahead of time, for example, that, that um, Scott Walker had threatened to take the National Guard. Uh, and is somebody typing? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I think it's done. Oh, it's okay. okay. <laughs> um, anyway, that, that he had threatened to take the National Guard. Uh, you know, against anybody who protested his budget proposal and those kinds of things. And they were really good at continuing to get the news in my face. And so because they, I could, they could do that, I could then be vocal and all of our friends could be vocal and we could talk about it. Well, in the meantime, so, so Wisconsin is having these huge protests, including, you know, 100,000 last Saturday, which goes completely unnoticed by the mainstream media. Mm-hmm. And then Meanwhile, over in Michigan, Rick Snyder is doing way worse things 
way worse than yes. Scott Walker. Yes. And and it's just somebody actually coming into the comments on Kristen Myers on a post that I wrote about Wisconsin and saying, and begging me, please don't ignore Michigan. Michigan is worse. We're in real danger. And when I started looking at Michigan, I thought, why is this not getting any attention? Yeah, I mean, the martial law over. provision. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they're making the governor an absolute monarch over there, right? Yes, they yeah. are. Right. And and not only that, but, I mean, he, he did things like he defunded, he, well, he, his new budget forces taxes on seniors' pensions. So if they're paid a pension in Michigan, they have to pay taxes. Meanwhile, he gave billions in tax cuts to businesses. So, I mean, it's like they're just absolutely raising the landscape. Everybody who is poor or middle class or isn't rich is going to pay for these businesses to get tax cuts. And then they're going to tell us, wait, I I guarantee this is my prediction, and you can come back to this show and see it. Then as the job picture improves, they're going to tell us that it was because of these tax cuts, which I say is... Nothing more than hostage-taking. Basically, these businesses said, bust the unions, bust the unions, and we'll, we'll bring the jobs back. Mm-hmm. And we won't be in better economic state because they won't pay to leave squat for any of these jobs. If they're talking about taxing pensions, why aren't the seniors screaming bloody murder over there? They are. They were, there were 1,500 of them in Lansing yesterday protesting. I've got a post coming up on it on Crooks and Liars, but it didn't get any post play because everybody's paying attention to all these other things. Yeah. It makes me crazy. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. <clears throat> I, I, I fully confess to feeling much of the crazy. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's, it's almost overwhelming. I mean, it, I was... I have I have just folders and folders of bookmarks about things like the way that they're pushing us all into privatizing the schools through the back door, you know, and, and that I haven't even gotten to because yeah. there's all these other things. Yep. Well, it is overwhelming, and that kind of brings us to the the theme that I thought we would talk about this morning. In that, um, Carol Lee, I know that you've read this book too. I, I recently read Matt Taibbi's Griftopia, which yes. was basically the most depressing bit of political reporting I have ever read because, you know, you finish that and you go, oh my God, you know, what happened to our democracy? You know, um, right. basically, Taibbi's um, premise is that Wall Street owns the politicians. Um, and oil-rich oligarchies own them, and they're just creating one bubble after another, and we seem almost powerless to do anything about it because everything is so complicated, it's, it's difficult to follow. And I think that a lot of this whole news cycle, this whole distraction machine is what's, um, you know, this Wall Street economy is behind it all, you know? Well, I, I would like to just throw in, and I admit, I confess, at this book club, I have not read the book, so I'm just here to drink the coffee and eat the cupcakes, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I <laughs> but uh, I really have to point out that um, they, 
they the astroturfing would not be quite as potent, I think, if they did not have the collusion of the corporate media. And I really feel like um, we were hearing, we were reading stories and seeing headlines and hearing about how the TV networks, you know, their bottom lines were plunging. You know, was TV going, TV news going the way of print, which we all know is circling the drain, et cetera, on its last legs. And uh, now we don't see those stories anymore because I think that Citizens United, what it did was it unleashed a fire hose of money on, um, you know, in terms of political influence. But what it did was it paid for political consultants and pundits on the right, and it also makes for very fat um, local news bottom, you know, bottom lines because they've got local races um, where people are purchasing, you know, political ads, and they've got national races where that's happening, and now we're looking at the presidential election coming up with, I don't know, a dozen, pick, take your pick, of however many Republicans are, are going to be running, uh, you know, for the nomination on their side. So I think, you know, corporate media is just sort of rubbing its hands in glee because it's like, oh, we found our business model, and it's the Koch brothers and Wall Street. Well, I think that – I'm sorry, Carolee, go on. I I was just going to agree to an extent. I mean, you can't – I think you have to assume that corporate media will not inform anybody of anything other than what benefits them. Mm -hmm. Because they make too much money uh, from that. But more to the point that that, uh, Taibi brings up is essentially what we have is a situation where bubbles are – Manufacturer, in order to essentially take money away from working people and to strip them of their assets, and then they burst, and the people who hurt, people who suffer, are us, and the Wall Street and yeah. it's Here's an example going on right now. The, 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 the reason that oil prices are so high is because speculators are driving the prices up. They're, they're essentially betting that because of the unrest in the middle that gas will be scarce, demand will be high, so they're driving prices up by speculating on them. And nobody's doing anything about that. And who's paying the price? We are. Right. Right. Um, He gave example after example in the book about how the 2008 oil spike, you know, people blamed it on the Chinese. People blamed it on Americans for wanting too much gas. And it was purely um, fueled by speculation. And right now, You've got another oil spike happening because of what's going on in the Mideast and Libya, but there actually isn't a shortage yet. The price of a barrel of oil has gone way up because of speculation that there will be a shortage. And in the meantime, we're, we're paying $4 at the pump again here in California. Well, and then, and then here's how corporate media plays into that. Fox News for the last week, two weeks probably, has been urging Obama to take action in Libya because of gas prices. Right. 
they don't want Obama to take action in Libya. I mean, they, they, if he did something like that, but they're just trying to push him to do something that will make his face angry. But they, they don't really want to do anything. What they're doing, though, is creating an atmosphere where everybody can blame Obama for the high rising oil prices mm-hmm. instead of really looking at the cause. Which is speculation. So, Haiti's book goes through a bazillion examples of this. The housing market, credit default, the uh, gas prices. What are some of the others, Donna? Those are the three that come to mind right away. But Those are the three big ones. And then Sin, the other day, just privately talking, says she, she feels that she could see this happening with education privatizing education may be the next one, and that this assault on unions and on our state budgets could be the next wave for making it easier to have a bubble in education. Oh, I think I I want to say that's not like my original idea. I I know that for those of us who are kind of, you know, watching the education press and sort of watching, you know, the many billionaires suddenly, you know, in all their uh, magnanimity, you know, getting involved in education and helping the children, <laughs> quote unquote, that uh, you know, um, it, it, it's being talked about a lot in in those circles. And I think, you know, you always have to ask, follow the money, right? Who benefits? And so that's kind of, you know, the the thing that makes the most sense in terms of why it is that people are getting in, involved in education and and how it is that. Um, government dollars basically can be shunted away from actual schools that are existing that need them to, you know, all kinds of fancy, schmancy um, charter management organizations and, you know, technology in the schools and just uh, lots of different um, parts of of what I call big ed, you know, just waiting to uh, suck up those dollars. Well, it makes sense. You know, oh, go ahead, Carrie. Well, the, the charter management organization is um, a very interesting thing. You know, essentially these are for-profit organizations that manage charter schools. And I was just looking at one the other day, um, which has a lot of traction in Michigan right now. Uh, and this particular manager also um, has a curriculum. They have a, a company under their parent that has a curriculum. So any charter school that they manage also uses that curriculum, yeah. which means that you have two things going on. Uh, and, and by the way, I, I wasn't able to find enough specifics about the curriculum to say it was good or bad. I mean, I, it's just their curriculum and you pay for it. So they make money on two fronts. They're making money through management, and then they make money through uh, the curriculum which the state has to buy from them for these schools. So yes, so it's basically <laughs> a very a very fancy kind of self dealing that would not be allowed in a public school setting where nepotism and you know that sort of self dealing um, really isn't allowed. But here, you know, you have like the you know the school that then has to purchase its own special 
self-generated curriculum, and also there's administrative stuff that they have to pay for, which, look at that. You know, the CEO of the Charter Management Organization happens to own a company that does procurement for all the notebooks and pencils and crayons you might ever need, you know, that kind of thing. Um, whereas, uh, at least in the public side, there is the semblance of, um, you know, bidding, <laughs> a bidding process, uh, you know, that is supposedly transparent, you know, and um, accountable to the public in terms of where taxpayer dollars go. And I think, uh, you know, another big piece of this is sort of the real estate piece, which um, I feel like I lack much of the expertise, um, you know, as, as these are big um, and fairly complex, you know, financial transactions. But I think that there's some you know, if you kind of look under the rock of, you know, these um, lease lease back deals and things like that in terms of the actual real estate required to have a school, you know, to have a school facility, um, my sense is that, you know, just looking at the superficial um, things that are available on the surface, that if you lift up that rock, there's probably some creepy crawlies, you know, ready to crawl out underneath. And um, I, I think that you know, is is never reported. No, it's not. In fact, it, in the press, the charter schools, you know, are the big, big innovative heroes of the education reform movement. So, and and you know, I don't want to, I don't want to completely be negative on them because I do know people who have benefited from charter schools. But mm-hmm. there's also several different ways that charter schools can be structured. The ones right. in our community still have the requirement to um, adhere to the curriculum as set by the school board. You know, they can teach different with a different method. They can require parental participation. They can do all those things, but they still have to use the same curriculum that the other schools use. They have to meet those standards. Not all charter schools are like that. But right. The one, but the ones, some of them are. And those I don't have as big a problem with. But when I look at the ones that I'm seeing in Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania and, you know, the Midwest states where essentially what they are are publicly funded private schools. Mm-hmm. And and the only thing that makes them different from, say, a church school is that you can't go to church. You know, you can't have it based in church. You can't have a church be in charge of it. Um, but they've changed that if they had their way, too. <laughs> Um, you know, they are being managed by multi-million dollar companies. The company that I was looking at manages schools in China, Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. um, as well as the United States. It, it's a wow. multinational corporation. It's funded by millions of DC dollars. And um, it clearly appears to me to be, um, as you said, you know, the next lurking bubble out there. And 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 how, what better sales pitch than investing in our children? Right. Who who is against the children except for the GOP? That is, <laughs> who won't fund the schools they go to? <laughs> yeah. It's it, there's a, there's a lot of rot under there. Yeah, a lot of rot and decay. And you know, I think um, we've had charter schools now for. Uh, what about 15 years? I mean, I think the first charter school was launched in Minnesota, you know, back in the early 90s, I believe. And um, 
so we've had we've had some time now to see like what the record is and while there are charter schools that you know um very much are are mission driven and you know exist to serve um communities that were not being served well before and needed some sort of emergency injection of something to to turn situations around um i think what's what's uh really murky is sort of like that middle area where the test score results are, you know, equally as middling as your local neighborhood public school, <laughs> which in that case yeah. it's like, okay, so we've increased the number of charter schools. In California alone there's like almost 900 charter schools, mm-hmm. yet we have not really budgeted because they, they draw in part from the same general fund from the state, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we've added, just like simple math, like we've added that many more schools, but we haven't increased the general fund for education budgets by 900-fold. So you see where it's starting to kind of carve into uh, a smaller and smaller piece of the pie. Um, and so I think that's when, you know, it would really behoove all of us, especially parents who have children in charter schools. I, I think I would be very upset to learn that I basically signed a contract of parent involvement, part of which includes fundraising, which we all do anyway, whether we sign a contract or not. But uh, I would be very upset to learn that the CEO of the charter management organization is making $400,000 plus, whereas a California high school principal makes about 150000 and as high school or a, and a school superintendent in California, you know, has an average salary of about 170000 So, you know, you're looking at public sector pay rates, <laughs> pay scales, and then you're comparing that to the charter management organization and, you know, what's the – there's a lot about, you know, value added this and that. Well, where's the value that's being added for your extra $200,000 that you perhaps are fundraising for? <laughs> Right to pay that person's salary, like where's what right. the added benefit, and and that's really what I would ask if I, if my child were going to a charter, you know, I'd be like, what, right. you know, where where's the extra benefit that I'm getting that my child is getting? Because we know that the profit margins mean pay the teachers less, maybe make them work longer hours as well, and also you know pay these CEOs extra you know extra money more than what. Um, a comparable, you know, managerial person would make in the public sector. That that would make me raise some eyebrows. Yeah, it, it would, and that that's before you even talk about the fact that charter schools don't all have requirements for teachers to be credentialed. Right. You know, so now you're. I mean, I hear a whole lot, of, you know, from. Michelle Reeves of the world about how bad teachers need to go and tenure needs to end, but um, there's no no one speaking about the fact that charter school teachers, many of them, don't need to be credentialed um, if they pass the standards set by the charter management organization. And it, it, it's, it's very dangerous territory because what worries me is that we're going to end up with um, an ignorant generation, an uneducated generation. Mm-hmm. And we can't afford that. We, we just can't. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I, I hope that we can 
Um, I, I mean, this is an area where I really diverge with Obama. I, I don't agree with his education policy. And I know you guys did a whole show on this last week, so I don't mean to go down this road. But when it comes to turning our public schools into profit centers, I have a big problem with it. Yes. I mean, I think that and also the Afghanistan war, that's kind of my biggest, you know, departures with Obama. Um, I mean, there are other places, too, but, uh, yeah. And I, I think that has, just very quickly, you know, because I, I know that we want to get back to Griftopia, but um, I know that uh, it has electoral implications because I know that a lot of hopeful moms and dads <laughs> whose children are now in these public schools facing all these, you know, budget cuts um, were really big backers of Obama because we we knew that we needed a big change, and so now um, it's it's a bitter irony that um, you know he is through race to the top um, advocating for e the expansion of even more charter schools, which you know we've all had however many years now to kind of assess, and it's like well, you know for those of us who are kind of at the at the ground level in the trenches actually experiencing these public schools, whether they're charter schools or existing public schools, you know, the 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 bloom is off the rose in terms of charters and what they've promised. I mean, I think the most egregious thing is if a charter school were to go into a low-income community and promise, you know, hold out this promise that we're going to turn things around, we're finally going to address you know, your child's educational needs, but then if that very school is the same one that is embezzling $2 million or what have you, then I think that's kind of like even more gruesome that, you know, people have come in and made these promises and then turned around and, um, you know, treated this as an opportunity for graft and corruption and, you know, self-enrichment because, if anything, those students were already poorly served by existing schools, and now to have this, you know, perpetrated on them is, I think, even worse. So, right. yeah, and uh, yeah. So uh, just to close out, close out that idea. I mean, I think that Obama really has to think about who is going to talk him up, who is going to make those calls, who is going to, you know, get into their mom's groups and say, you got, we we need to do this because this is the best route for our kids. I mean, I, I see serious, you know, danger signals there. I do, know. too. Yeah. And teachers. I mean, you yeah. know, teachers are not happy with him either, so. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. That um, kind of brings us back to the Taibi book where... Hmm. You could see that he is very disappointed, as are a lot of us, in some of the policy decisions by the Democrats once they came into power, which seem to indicate that they're as much in the pocket of Wall Street as the GOP, or maybe not quite as much, but, but somewhat. I mean, you still have no one going to jail for raping our economy. Mm -hmm. um, you still have decisions that were made that, that don't make sense if you were thinking about the welfare of our people rather than the welfare of corporations. And it just feels like the corruption, and this is why the book's so depressing, because you, you leave it going, the corruption is too deep and too hard to fight, and the things that are going on are too complicated for the news media to follow in little sound bites. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. 
and this is where I push back on the book. This is the part of Matt Taibbi that I don't like. He's really good at snarking, and he's really good at um, explaining things. And he's another. He, he, there's another one like this. Chris Hedges is the same way. Um, they're they're very good at identifying the problems. I'm not so good at identifying solutions. Yes. And um, <laughs> where I diverge with Taibbi is on his conclusion that we're just all screwed. I don't buy that. I don't think 100,000 people in Wisconsin buy that. I don't think the people that are already almost have 50% of the recall signatures for eight senators in Wisconsin buy that. I think we do have a voice, and I think that they win if we just get depressed and disappointed and say, wham. You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, they they win if we're demoralized. I mean, it's a it's a psychological game as much as it is, you know, moving your players around in, on the chessboard in state legislatures and in the Congress. It's it's you know, it's an emotional game too, right? If I psych you right. out, then you're you know, you're not going to vote. Okay, ladies, right. talk me up. <laughs> okay, I'm talking you up. There's this whole meme that's going on that pushes the Taibbi theory, right, that is that we're this center-right nation. We are not a center-right nation. We're not when it comes to issues. We're only a center-right nation because that's what everybody has been told, okay? And then wedge issues get used to, to actually kind of push that ahead. Here's my point. If you had Barack Obama in office with an actual liberal Congress, not the Congress we had in 111, which wasn't an actual liberal Congress, but an actual liberal, real, honest-to-God liberal Congress, right, we would see progress in these areas. He's working inside of a bunch of constraints. He doesn't have any choice to do. And, and, and the thing is, I don't believe that he would actually veto a liberal bill if it came to his death. I think he would sign it, whereas the Republican would veto it. Yeah. But the thing is, if we don't get out there, and we it, every all progress is going to be made one step at a time. We're going to get one more liberal in there. We're, the Republicans are overreaching. We have a huge opportunity right now, huge. And if we sit back and go, wham, we're not going to get that. We're not going to make that happen. The opportunity right now is to bypass the mainstream media, to bypass the bullshit, use my language, but it is, um, it's going on in Congress and, and all this noise, and to say, look, look at the 14 Democrats in Wisconsin. Look at the people who are standing up for what they believe in, and do it, you know, and, and that means getting out and doing it and moving, even if it's not exactly what we want, we have to move it in that direction. We have to push it. We have to use our voice. Stand up. So basically, you know, and me and you and the other Mobocrats getting together once a week and talking about it out here on this show. This is one small part of fighting all of that. Yes, absolutely. And then and, and even we should even maybe do more as the elections get closer and the primaries get closer. We should you know, I don't know, maybe I did radio daily during two thousand eight. I'd be I'd love to do that again. Mhm. Um We've been you know, talking about expanding. <laughs> I think Good. it's a matter of who has the bandwidth. I, I would like to say that I, you know, I thought it was actually 300,000 people in Madison, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, there were like 150,000 people and then 50,000 tractors. I don't know. But <clears throat> I um, I also take a lot of hope from um, the U.S. uncut people. 
Yes. They have been really pushing back against Bank of America. I know there was a National People's Action Group that went to, um, you know, similarly occupy a Bank of America and question, you know, where, what is the corporate tax burden and why does it seem so tiny compared to the middle class tax burden? <laughs> Uh, what have you done with the TARP money? You know, wh- are you lending to the community as you are supposed to do, et cetera, asking all kinds of uncomfortable questions, and then going to John Boehner's office in D.C. and asking the similar questions, like what happened to the jobs that you were all banging on about uh, back in November? Did you think we forgot about that? You know, um, so I think I think it's um, in part just pushing back, and I think we need to be better on our side about putting our heads down and just sort of following our own agenda. And I was really happy to see, for example, that um, Diane Feinstein, who is, to my mind, you know, kind of blue doggy in some ways, you know, not what I would call sort of a shining, you know, standard bearer of progressivism in the Senate, but hey, you know, she seems to vote enough of the right way for me that I can say, well, okay, um, you know, grimly tolerate her. But she sent out an email today to uh, all of her California constituents who bothered to get on her email list that she's introducing a bill to repeal DOMA in the Senate. And I'm like, great. San Francisco, mind you. Do it. Go for it. Uh, Yeah. You know what? Because I think public opinion has evolved even since the passage of Proposition 8, here in California, I think there's, you know, there's been some voter remorse and, you know, people sort of paying attention belatedly, sadly, but, you know, regardless, I think there's been a huge movement in, in public support, you know, for marriage equality and, and realizing that Proposition 8 was a mistake on many levels, right, changing our Constitution to enshrine discrimination, uh, just on like a civil liberties level, right? So. I, I take hope. I think that, you know, I would like to see more things like that. Senator Gillibrand, she stood up the other day and said, we need to get out of Afghanistan. We need to revisit this July 2011 deadline and make it real. You know, we need to do this. Um, so I really, I feel like we put our heads down it and we work and we also stick to, like, our agenda, <laughs> you know, and, and push that forward. Make them react for once. You know, right? I I agree. I think, and I think that's absolutely true. And I think the the biggest mistake we can make, and the way that we would play into the hands of the right, is to be disappointed in Obama. You know, let's. I, 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 yes, I disagree with him on some things, but I'm not disappointed. He's doing the best he can do. I'm glad he's the president. I I honestly am. And what I want is to keep pushing those agendas and to keep pushing him on those agendas. Right. Forward. Well, um, uh, on that up note, <laughs> I'd like to once again thank Bubble Genius for sponsoring our show. Um, take a look at their um, at their site at bubblegenius.com. They've got some really cute new items, like the mustache shower set that they showed Sin and me, and. Um, that's it for our show today. Sin and Carolee, thank you for joining us. And we'll see you next week on Mamacrats Mama Chat. Thanks. Thanks for being Yeah, thanks for talking us up at the end. Yeah. <laughs> we'll not leave on a down note. 
That's change right. is possible. Change is possible. We have to believe it. We have to work on it. That's right. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Right. Thanks. Bye.